0: what's the most annoying question you think that we're asked as being twins what's it like being a twin that's what I would say I don't know what it's like I mean I don't have any other alternative totally. I've, never, I've never not been a twin and I don't. we don't have any other brothers and sisters so it's not like we have a relationship with any other siblings also I guess if you had a bad relationship with your twin and somebody asked you that question then you'd be like oh I hate my twin but we don't hate each other so it's fine Now we're good yeah <laughs> This is my sister Zoe and me. We're twins, identical ones, and yeah, we've got pretty similar voices. So I'm Gemma, and I'm Zoe. This month's episode of the Ant Hill podcast from The Conversation is all about twins. Annabelle and Will have kindly let me, Gemma Ware, host the show. I've got a bit of a stake in this one. We'll be talking to sociologists who study twinship, to a researcher doing his PhD on representations of twins in popular culture, and to leading academics in the field of twin studies about how useful twins are to science. And I sat down with my sister to talk about the kinds of questions we commonly get asked about being twins. It's something we also asked a couple of the other people who you'll be hearing in this podcast. OK, so what's the most common question? Well, I um, mean, we quite often get asked about. Can you read each other's minds, or do you know when she's in pain? Do you get asked that? Sometimes. I also get asked, like, did you ever switch positions for each other in crucial moments of your life? And we did that once, so we always regurgitate the same story. Yeah, we only did it once. It wasn't very successful. It wasn't very successful. I was doing a test. You were doing a test? Yeah. In maths? Yeah. And all our classmates were in on it, and all the people in the class knew, but the teacher then quickly sussed because everyone started laughing. Because we don't actually look that similar. No. No. Although others maybe think we do. But I do quite often get asked, do you know when she's in pain? Which, frankly, no. Whether we like it or not, there is something about twins that makes us a bit special. And no, I'm not just saying that, because I'm a twin. So what does research say about how twins experience growing up? And is it really any different to having a brother or sister who's not exactly the same as you? Ant Hill producer Annabelle Bly took a look at research into how being a twin affects your identity.
1: Twins come with a lot of stereotypes. We expect them to be incredibly close, and even if they are not identical we expect twins to be really similar and share a special bond. But this is often not the case. In fact, the relationship that twins have with each other varies widely.
2: So for some twins, that identity is very positive, supportive and special. That, you know, I have someone who is most definitely my closest kin and understands me perhaps better than anyone else in the world. That's Alison Pike,
1: professor of child and family psychology at the University of Sussex.
2: However, for other children and adult twins, it can be different. They can see this as a person who is their ultimate rival. This person is almost getting in the way of them having their own individual identity. So yes, I think this is hugely important, but I don't think that it necessarily is all positive or all negative and can certainly be a mixture of both. Alison
1: says that research into twin identity is relatively scant, but she's worked with twins as part of her wider research into sibling and family dynamics. She actually had a PhD student a few years ago, Catherine Mark, now a researcher at King's College London, who was particularly interested in twin relationships and how they might differ from other sibling ones. The results were quite surprising.
2: So what Catherine discovered in her research was that the identical twins, the fraternal twins, the brothers and sisters, all of these different groups of siblings, they had similar average levels of conflict, of rivalry, of companionship, of playing nicely together, being affectionate.
1: Other research has shown there to be differences between twin relationships and other siblings. But on the whole, the differences tend to be very small.
2: But you can see in this case, we didn't find any differences at all. And you have to wonder, you know, are there really differences between twins and siblings, even though in our popular imagination... Twins seem incredibly special, and if you talk to twins, their identity as a twin comes out loud and clear as being important. But perhaps when we are actually using psychological measurements, there's far more similarity with brothers and sisters than differences.
1: It's helpful here to take a look at the wider research into how different siblings get along and what influences the quality of those relationships.
2: If we look at brothers and sisters and how close in age they are, so we have an age gap in the case of twins that's zero, you know, a matter of minutes, all the way up to 10, maybe 15 years of an age gap. In general, the research shows that the closer the age gap, the more intense the relationship tends to be. So it's not more positive or more negative, it tends to be more of both. There tends to be more time spent in one another's company and more conflict, more rivalry, but also more companionship, more confiding in in one another potentially. But Alison says the biggest thing determining how close
1: twins are is their personality and temperament. And the same goes for the relationship between other siblings. So with non-twin brothers and sisters, it depends a lot on the personality of the older sibling.
2: So a child who is very sociable, perhaps a child who likes to teach, likes to be the boss, might get along very well with a younger brother or sister, especially if that younger brother or sister is more malleable, is a child who is teachable, if you like, who doesn't mind taking direction.
1: Now with twins, it's obviously a bit different because the difference in age is a matter of minutes.
2: In the case of twins, there isn't an older versus a younger sibling um, who would necessarily be dominant. And so personality and temperament are perhaps even more important for determining that relationship. And perhaps it's as much about the match of personalities as it is each individual twin's personalities. For example, twins who share a lot of the same interests and perhaps have similar levels of activity and sociability uh, would be more compatible than twins who are a bit more mismatched. And this
1: applies to identical twins just as much as it does to non-identical twins.
2: So monozygotic twins are genetically identical, but that doesn't mean that their behaviour or their personalities are 100% the same. There can be other influences which have an impact on how they get on with one another, what their personalities are like, what their temperament's like. It's quite common for for parents, especially of identical twins, to make a conscious effort for their children to lead somewhat separate lives, to be able to develop their own separate identities. So if they're in different classrooms, they will develop different networks of friends they'll have different teachers and those types of individual experiences can lead them to have somewhat different personalities so in many
1: ways it's wrong to view twins as particularly different to other siblings and yet and yet as Alison said when you talk to twins it's hard to escape how significant being a twin is for them whether they like it or not. There's a bit of a paradox here, it seems, between the quantitative research, which gives an overarching view of things, and qualitative findings, which deal more with individual idiosyncrasies. This is something that Kate Bacon, a sociologist at the University of Central Lancashire, has looked into. For her book, Twins in Society, Parents, Bodies, Space and Talk, she spoke to a number of twins ranging from the ages of 8 to 36, as well as their parents, about their experience of growing up.
3: Really, one of the things that came out is that twins, like other children, live their lives amidst a backdrop of expectations about what it means to be a child, to become an adult, and what all that process of growing up is like. So twins are like other kids in that respect. But I suppose unlike other children, twins also live out that journey of becoming an adult amidst stereotypes of, Sameness, twins are like double trouble, I guess. Togetherness, twins are like two peas in a pod. And closeness, and they are very dominant kind of cultural expectations that get associated with being a twin.
1: This expectation to be the same, always together and very close has a big effect on twins in terms of how they view and present themselves.
3: The youngest ones are eight years old, really sort of played up those social expectations so they were quite keen to demonstrate how similar they were even though actually when you looked at them physically they were quite different and they also talked up how nice it was to be together to have somebody to play with.
1: Twins also tend to have a more intense experience of sharing.
3: Certainly most of the twins in my study started out in a shared room a lot of them were put in the same class at school and so on. Unfortunately, it's, it's not necessarily always a positive thing for some of the twins I spoke to. Sharing, although it it was the thing that really was at the heart of what being a twin was, was also really quite frustrating. One girl in particular comes to mind. You know, she talked about wanting to pull a hair out. One of the twins went and sat in a toilet because it had a lock on the door, and it was a sort of personal space that she craved, that she could control. You know, I'm not saying that sharing is only a twin experience. Of course, it's not but the intensity in which twins have that experience might be specific to twins.
1: The older that twins get, the more they try to differentiate themselves from one another. This came out in Kate's conversations with twins that were aged between 13 and 17.
3: Conversations with me revealed that being a twin meant, you know, trying to distance yourself as much as possible from that stereotype of sameness, that they wanted to really present themselves as being quite different people, not looking the same, as each other or anyone, was really important to them. Peter, one of the twins I spoke to, said to me, you know, it's it's good to be
1: different. This applies even more in adulthood. As twins grow up, there's a social expectation that they become more independent.
3: The adults that I spoke to, so between about 20 and 36 years old, their accounts revealed that it was socially acceptable to give up on some aspects of twinship. So... Growing up successfully did mean leaving behind, to a large extent, looking the same, because adults that look the same, in their words, not mine, are weird or idiots or can be seen to be stupid. It also meant giving up on that expectation of being together all the
1: time. What's interesting here is that throughout childhood, the idea of being the same and dependent on each other gets pushed on twins. Then, as adults, this can be seen as weird. So they have to grapple with these contradictory expectations.
3: There are these cultural expectations and I think twins, as they're growing up, getting older, will tend to distance themselves from being associated with being the same and being together because it undermines their presentation of of being a successful growing child that's going to turn into this independent, unique individual, which is quite a contrast to that stereotype
1: of sameness. So in lots of ways, twins aren't very different from other siblings. Often it's just cultural stereotypes that put forward this idea of twins being super siblings, either loving each other intensely or having fierce rivalries. And yet it's the persistence of these stereotypes that does have an impact. Ultimately, it makes it difficult for twins to avoid having their identity shaped by being a twin.
0: Annabel Blyther, one of the producers of our show. A lot of those stereotypes we were just hearing about from Kate Bacon find their way into popular culture. But they are often taken to the extreme, and twins get presented in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. At one end of the spectrum, there's the idea of the evil twin. This is particularly pervasive in gothic literature and horror films.
4: So the Evil Twin kind of begins really as the concept of the double or the shadow self really in in the Gothic, especially in German Gothic literature and also in American
0: literature. That's Xavier Reyes, Senior Lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University, who spoke to The Conversation's Paul Keaveney.
4: So from Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson, where um, a man is haunted, apparently, by this other version of himself, who ends up killing him, and then it turns out he's killed himself at the end of the story. It tends to be connected early on with the idea of the uncanny, of that which is kind of eerily familiar.
0: Xavier brought up the example of Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film The Shining, which features a set of identical twins, played by Lisa and Louise Burns.
4: What is interesting about The Shining is that the decision to have twins there was accidental. Stanley Kubrick was not looking for twins. It was when he was doing the auditions that the Byrne sisters uh, turned up and he liked the idea because he thought it looked very spooky and it would mm. be spookier to have two of the same. They look very alike and that's one of the uncanny things mm-hmm. about the, the concept of the twin in horror yeah. is that you know, this impossible image of something repeated. Now obviously anyone that knows twins knows that that is not the case um, ever um, or at least not past the first time you meet them. But that is certainly what horror has found interesting.
0: Taking a deeper look at how twins get represented in popular culture, and the effect this can have, is The Conversation's assistant editor, Laura Hood, who is also a twin. If you think about
5: it, twins are everywhere in literature, cinema, and the arts more broadly. We're there to entertain you, to disconcert you and make you laugh. But our twinliness is never there as an incidental. Twins in culture are, almost without exception, defined by their twin status. Never, or at least rarely, will you see a twin character exist as a solo entity who just happens to have a sibling born on the same day. Sometimes the relationship is portrayed as joyful and fun, at other times it's oppressive and harmful, but it is always there, front and centre of a protagonist's identity. If you think about the times you've seen twins in a film or TV show or read about twins in a novel, you may start to notice certain patterns. They're probably dressed the same, probably seen together at all times and probably display supernatural abilities to read each other's minds. The representation of twins in Western culture has the potential to affect how we view twins in the real world and how we treat them when we encounter them in our own lives. So it matters more than you might think. James Hochter from the University of Kent is conducting research that he hopes will contribute to the way twins are studied and understood. That's included looking at how twins are represented in literature and the arts, and in academic thinking, such as psychoanalysis.
6: What drove me towards this was, I suppose, first off, it was my own experience as a twin, feeling that perhaps when I came across representations of twins in popular culture and in theoretical literature, I felt that maybe it didn't represent my experience of being a twin. I examined photographs, I examined literature, I examined film, I examined television, and then I also examined theoretical accounts of twinships, of philosophy, psychology, psychoanalysis, in order to to show that there's a correlation between the assumptions in both areas.
5: James has looked at the work of three photographers in particular, all working in the United States between the 1950s and late 2000s. Diane Arbus, Mary Ellen Mark and Harvey Stein.
6: Those photographs uh, seem to articulate the values or where we place twinship and how we imagine twinship. And so very often we look at the photographs and we see twins are in some way conjoined, so they'll be touching or their arms will be folded within each other. They will exaggerate the identical aspect of twinship so they will be dressed similarly or their hairstyle will be the same or their poses will be the same. All of these photographers have uh, endorsed these common cultural assumptions we have about twinship.
5: These photos reveal a central point about the way we treat twins. There are lots of shots of young twins in matching outfits, something most people probably find adorable, but there are also pictures of adult twins dressed the same. Those pictures are less charming they're even a bit odd. So at some point in a twin's life, wearing the same clothes crosses the line from cute to creepy. But do you know where that line is? And do the twins know where that line is? Somehow, twins are supposed to navigate the transition. They're meant to know when they should start dressing differently because the outside world no longer wants to see them dressing the same.
6: So Harvey Stein has a photograph uh, and it's called Parallels. So I'm looking at two boys, probably about six or seven years of age, they're identical twins and they're both wearing sunglasses and similar t-shirts and they both have their arms around each other. And that evokes, in me at least, a sense of, of positivity about the aspects and some sense of that's nice that they're able to be twins and be able to be close. Um, and I think that's very often what it evokes in most people or particularly in single born persons. So if I go to another picture, which is another photograph by Harvey Stein, it's a picture titled Walter and David Oliver. 65 years old and Walter is older by eight minutes, it was taken in 2001. These are two older gentlemen who are dressed in the uniform that a baseball player wears with a pair of shorts and they're wearing sailor caps.
5: So, two photographs of twins in matching outfits. The only difference, really, is their age. And yet the effect is totally different. We're meant to see the kids as fun and sweet, while the older twins give us an uncanny feeling.
6: Although we encourage sameness, and although we encourage people to identify with one another and feel part of a larger social group, with twins, very often we use twins as a way to say, this is the boundary and you shouldn't go any further than this in these particular relations.
5: There's a similar point to be made about the physical proximity of twins. If a writer or a director wants you to be creeped out by their twin characters, they'll probably depict them as standing weirdly close to each other or holding hands in a way that would be considered abnormal.
6: So for example, if we go back to the photographs, in the example of the two younger twins, they're wrapped around each other, their arms are wrapped around each other. With the older gentleman, they're touching. So it's not that they're represented as conjoined, but they're represented as always being in close physical contact with each other. We essentially stick their identities together.
5: It might not seem like that much of a big deal that twins are always represented as being together. But stop to consider for a second how that might affect your conception of people who are twins. I, for example, don't spend every minute of the day with my twin. We hang out, but not every day. Yet the idea that twins are always together somewhere becomes the idea that twins should always be together. James highlighted an article from the Daily Mail.
6: The title of the article was called The Twins Who Lost Two Years of Togetherness. So it highlights that two twin infants had been separated for two years because one had been severely ill, To directly quote that article, it said celebrating their second birthday was a particularly special occasion for Elizabeth and Sophie Ray, for at last they were together as twins should be.
5: It's a heartwarming story, sure. And yes, my twin and I do spend our birthday together. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's messed up if we don't. It's all part of a conception society has of twins. They are only really operating as they should as people when they are operating as a unit. Instead of being two people, they are two halves of a unit.
6: Very often we see them as portrayed as always together. They don't function separately, so they have to be together. Otherwise there's going to be some kind of emotional disturbance or something's going to go wrong. They need each other for equilibrium, basically.
5: This idea perhaps finds its foundations in Greek myth.
6: Apparently Zeus created this unitary being which was too powerful. It it threatened the gods, so he had to split this unitary being in half, those two have spent the rest of their lives looking for each other to feel whole again.
5: The other classic twin trope that I'm sure resonates with every twin the world over is the idea that we can somehow read each other's minds. We feel each other's pain and sadness and know when the other is in trouble.
6: Twins are imagined as cognitively bounded via some form of mind, And what I mean by that is that very often we see the twins uh, seemingly have some ability to share have a shared mind which allows them to experience their co-twin as they experience themselves. And so this manifests as accounts of extrasensory perception or a telepathic ability in twinship. Twins have an exceptional ability to be able to understand each other through perceptual experience, for example, in comparison to singletons who have to rely on higher cognitive functions such as language to understand each other. I once came across something that Kate Bacon uses, and I, I thought it was a very um, good way of articulating this notion of this meta mind or this idea of twins being cognitively bounded in some way. The image was from a Rugrats comic book. Rugrats is is a children's cartoon which explores the the lives of infants and toddlers. This particular example was a comic book strip which depicted uh, Phil and Lil, who are different sex. Twins as sharing a thought bubble, which seems to imply that they either have shared a thought or they know what the other is thinking.
5: Again, just a bit of fun, right? But this idea goes beyond rugrats. It has infiltrated serious scientific research too. Take biologist Rupert Sheldrake, for example.
6: This was an academic, and I think he was quite eccentric, but he still made the claim that twins are perfect for studying person-to-person telepathy. So it's not just in popular culture, we can see it in academic accounts as well. There's correlations between the two ideas.
5: So if your only experience of twins is from film or TV or photos, you could come away with some very specific and very unrealistic misconceptions about who they are and how they live their lives. And here's an important point. Most of this stuff is created by non-twins. It reflects how non-twins see twins and, in turn, it affects how non-twins see twins. Beyond being a useful plot device, there are consequences to the matching outfits and the mind-reading.
6: I think, basically, it, it leaves us in a situation where twins are misunderstood and, whether we like it or not, those assumptions inform research on twinship and they also inform how other people understand twins that has formed our predominant understanding of twinship and that creates a whole host of issues for twins, I think, even emotional issues and psychological issues and things like that. There's this guy called René Zazo, he was a French psychologist, he's passed away now, but he wrote extensively on twins. He claims that twins have always served psychology, but psychology has rarely served twins. And I think we could say the same thing about culture, we could say twins have always served culture but culture has rarely served twins.
0: That was James Hoctor from the University of Kent talking to The Conversation's Laura Hood. Laura asked James what's the most annoying thing he gets asked about being a twin, and he actually recounted an alarming anecdote.
6: So my twin's name is Andrew. So it was back in Ireland recently, and someone came up to me and they just said, I don't know which one you are, I'm just going to call you James Andrew. And they kept calling me James Andrew <sighs> for the night. And I was just and oh and then they they sometimes they call me Andrew James but that's one of the things I really hate I think it's very disrespectful to someone to do something like that.
0: I'm glad that's never happened to me. So Laura and her twin brother also get asked some strange questions about being twins. Here she is talking to her twin brother Alexis. Hello.
5: Hi, bro.
7: Sorry, is terrible around here. Yeah, I can hear you a bit. How's it going?
5: All right. So we're doing this podcast about twins, and um, uh-huh. pretty much everyone involved is a twin. So we're all asking our twins these questions.
3: Okay.
5: Okay. So the first question is, what is the most common question you get asked about being a twin?
7: Um, it's a bit silly, but I think, I say, uh, are you identical?
5: I was going to say, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say that's the most annoying question that we get asked about being a twin. Yeah, and I do say that my twin is a sister and they still say it. But yeah,
7: that's definitely the yeah, most common question.
5: Afraid. I definitely remember that we've we've been standing in front of people at times and they've asked us if we're identical twins or not. And sometimes they, sometimes they realise that they've asked the most stupid question imaginable and sometimes they never realise at all. Yeah. So, um, what's the most annoying thing about uh, people asking about being a twin?
7: The most annoying thing, probably like the you know the whole census thing. is like, oh, if you fall over and hurt your knee, it's like your twin, likes like so psychological. <laughs> and stuff, that kind of stuff.
5: Yeah, I think, I think that's probably... I was going to say that, that was the other way around, so I think the most common question I get asked is do you feel each other's senses and can you read each other's minds and stuff? And then the most annoying thing yeah. is are you identical? So we've got, okay. we've got different answers on that one.
0: Thank you, Laura and Alexis Hood, for sharing your twin sights with us there. A few years ago, my sister and I began to realise how important twins are for science. In particular, debates about nature versus nurture and the impact that our genes have on our lives. Twins databases have been set up around the world and are being used to study a whole host of questions about the human condition. So Zoe and I decided to join one. Twins UK, a database of 12,000 pairs of twins, is run by a group of scientists at King's College London. Being a member is pretty cool. We get to go in for a whole series of tests every few years. It's like a free medical. And get the occasional questionnaire sent to us from researchers looking into specific topics. To find out more about the history of the database and what they're working on at the moment, I went along to their offices at St Thomas' Hospital to talk to Claire Steves, senior clinical lecturer at King's College London and a consultant geriatrician. I asked her why the database was initially set up.
8: The twin study here in King's College London was set up in about the early 90s, and the key questions that the scientists wanted to answer were about how things like osteoarthritis and osteoporosis develop. Because at the time, people thought they were just wear and tear, just natural ageing. There wasn't really much science behind the understanding of those two very, very common diseases. So Tim Spector, our director, who's still our director, decided to set up a twin study to try and look into whether or not there was a genetic component to these common
0: diseases. Tim Spector, who has been on the anthill before, talking about the experiments that he's done on himself back in episode 9, went on a big media campaign to recruit sets of twins from around the country. Most of them were women, because it's women who bear the biggest burden of osteoarthritis and osteoporosis. The database grew from there.
8: Really only about five years after, they realised how important this could be to study all health. And so started to broaden the visits and broaden the questions that were asked and to bring in collaborators from all over the world. And so now we have a very international resource.
0: So why are twins so useful to scientists? I asked Athula Sumatipala, Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Kiel, who is in the process of setting up a twins database in Sri Lanka.
9: It's a specific methodology by comparing identical or monozygotic twins with non-identical twins because monozygotic twins or what we call as identical twins are similar and because they share the genes exactly in the same way in a given trait for example eye color skin color things like that compared to the non-identical twins identical twins share the characteristics almost 100%. So therefore, by comparing a group of identical twins with non-identical twins, we can actually get a very clear idea about the relative contribution of genes and the environment.
0: Think of it like this. If you have 100 pairs of identical twins and 100 pairs of non-identical twins, and you look at whether or not they have a particular trait or disease, let's just say, for example, diabetes. If in 50% of the sets of the identical twins, both of the twins have diabetes, but that's only the case in 20% of the sets of non-identical twins, then it's more likely to be an inherited or genetic trait. We'll be hearing a bit more from Mithila on his new twin study later on. The use of twins to study the nature versus nurture debate has a long history. In 1875, the British researcher and eugenicist Sir Francis Galton wrote an article about the importance of twins. But it wasn't until the 1920s that a scholar called Charles Merriman started comparing identical twins with non identical twins. Sadly, studies using twins have been used for various unethical purposes since then. Tragically, The Nazi Joseph Mengele used twins for some of his disturbing experiments in Auschwitz concentration camp. And in a sinister study led by the child psychologist Peter Neubauer, sets of twins given up for adoption in the US were separated at birth and never told about it. It only stopped in 1980. There's actually a chilling episode about this experiment on the NPR podcast All Things Considered that's well worth listening to. Today, there is a lot of emphasis on ethics when carrying out experiments using twins but there are different designs for twin registers and twin databases. The one my sister and I are in at King's College London is a survey, so all the people involved are volunteers. Here's Claire Steves again.
8: Our twins are involved in quite complex studies, maybe even slightly invasive studies, because they're volunteers really care and they really want to come up and do it. Um, of course, having volunteers means that you do have a slightly healthy volunteer effect. So it's important to make sure that we... Uh, reproduce any findings we have in other sorts of studies that can tap into different
0: sets of populations, who may be slightly less willing to volunteer. There is another model called a population-based twin study, popular in Scandinavian countries. To find out more, I called up the head of one of these registers, based at the University of Southern Denmark.
7: Yeah, my name is Cor Christensen. I'm a medical doctor by training. I'm the director of the Danish Aging Research Centre and the Danish Twin Register.
0: A population-based study tries to find all the twins in a certain population, in this case Denmark, and study what happens to them over long periods of time. Cor explained that they started to collect the information in the 1950s, but the data goes back to the late 19th century.
7: And the story goes that the reason that they started back with those born in 1870 was that that was the birth year of the king. And it was an enormous amount of work where the two medical doctors, Hauke and Havel, contacted all the 2,200 parishes that are in Denmark. And they had the priests going through the church books. They were kind of The registration spot for uh, twins and other births in in Denmark and simply made a list of everybody who was born since 1870 and who was live-born twin with a live-born co-twin. And then afterwards, if they were still in the Paris, uh, they, they would contact them to ask whether they looked like two peas in a pod.
0: If they'd moved away, they tried to find them. If they died, they contacted families to ask whether they looked alike. There was one criteria.
7: And that was that both had to survive to age six in order to be certain about this, whether they looked alike, because it can be difficult with babies.
0: These pairs of twins have been followed throughout their lives. Some agree to participate and to answer regular questionnaires, and some don't, but that's still useful for the researchers. Even for the twins that don't participate, the scientists can track them using anonymized health records, and this has given the researchers a really interesting insight into ageing and death. A key finding is that about a quarter of the variation in lifespan of the twins in their study can be attributed to genetic factors, and the remaining to environmental factors and just pure chance.
7: Another way to demonstrate it is that in those cohorts, the old ones, those who survived to adulthood, the identical twins on average died 10 years apart, while the fraternal twins on average died 18 years apart. So it, it shows that despite that you have the same team and uh, grew up in the same childhood environment, it's not kind of your destiny.
0: It adds to the mystery of life almost in a way, It doesn't it? It kind of implies that chance is a really, really important part of life.
7: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and also because it's a little bit like you could be close to the edge and still make it. And sometimes, you know, you can be really unlucky because if we, for instance, are studying how you're functioning at old age, both physically and intellectually, then our studies indicate that it's about a 50-50 between genes and environment slash change. So there's a stronger genetic component to your functioning at old age compared to your exact length of life, which also makes sense because sometimes you can hang in there despite bad functioning and sometimes you die unexpectedly.
0: The Twins UK study, which has an average age of 65, is also being used to study ageing. This is something that Claire Steves researches.
8: There are differences in the way people age. So one 80-year-old can be completely different biologically from another 80-year-old. That's really fascinating. And me as a clinician, looking at frail older people, I really want to understand how is it that some people become really frail and succumb to many different diseases at the same time and have a really hard time in the later ends of life. And how is it that others kind of escape that? If we can really understand that, we could really make a difference to ageing.
0: Another big area of research that the twin study at King's is being used for is the microbiome, that world of bacteria that lives in your gut and which scientists are beginning to understand plays a key role in the way our lives pan out. The microbiome that exists in
8: our gut obviously metabolises our food. So it's a big filter between what we eat and what we actually take into our body. Uh, so, so, and also changes this precise metabolise so then our body takes in different nutrients. You know, So you might take in the same food, but what your gut microbiome does to it is very different. So you have a different internal effect of it.
0: This is all part of a growing stream of research into how the genetics of an individual might interact with their environment. And this is, goes back to that question, the big
8: question really facing society is how the difference in environments, in socioeconomic factors, in the exposures of people, really creates disease and creates this big inequality in health. I think that really is something that we've got to solve in the next 30 years, or at least try to solve. And so going forward, we want to really broaden and strengthen our socioeconomic and our environmental understanding of these these twins that have been in study for so long, so that we can really map that against their health parameters. And I think that's going to be really interesting in understanding the effect of environmental factors on individuals.
0: It's that question about what happens to people in different environments, and in particular different parts of the world, that has driven the research by Athula Sumatipala and his team to create twins databases based in non-Western countries. Athura's particular interest is in mental health, and it was through a twins database that he and colleagues set up in Colombo in the early 2000s that the team made an important discovery about depression.
9: We found that depression is less heritable in Sri Lankan sample compared to the Western population. We also have seen differences in the heritability, which means transferring the traits from one generation to the other generation.
0: This means that in Sri Lanka... A person's environment played a bigger part than their genes in whether or not they suffered from depression than it did in Western populations. And this was particularly the case for men. Athila says that this was a unique finding compared to similar research in the West. And he cites it as a key reason why more twin studies and databases are needed in the developing world.
9: Heritability estimates, which means understanding the percentage of genetic influence from one generation to the other generation, in terms of a trade, is very different in one population to the other one.
0: Athura says these kinds of findings are vital to designing the right interventions to help people with depression. He laments that only 10% of research comes from those countries that bear 90% of the world's diseases, meaning much of the way clinicians understand or diagnose certain health problems is based on research carried out in countries with very different environments.
9: Actually, the low- and middle-income countries, most of the evidence they use are from the Western societies, Western findings, Western research. If people believe that we can actually extrapolate from uh, research done in other parts of the world, it the evidence-based interventions, which we believe as evidence, is quite biased.
0: Athura says that his team was one of the first to create a twins database in the developing world. Since then, he says that many more have followed suit.
9: You know, when we started the Sri Lankan Twin Registry 15 to 20 years ago, there weren't anything, and Sri Lankan Twin Registry is the, the functioning, largest developing world twin base. We have 10,000 twin pairs only in Colombo District. Now there are twin databases in Cuba, Papua New Guinea, uh, Guinea-Bissau, Nigeria, Malaysia, Thailand, such countries. Uh, it's, it's growing, but we yes, we were the first.
0: In order to help build up this pool of research even further, Athula and his team recently won a grant from the Medical Research Council in the UK to start a new countrywide population-based twin study in Sri Lanka. They are teaming up with scientists in Sri Lanka, Australia and elsewhere in the UK to register and find all of the twins between the age of 0 and 18 in Sri Lanka, as well as all the mothers pregnant with twins. To start with, the focus will be on research into child and adolescent mental health.
9: Worldwide 10 to 20 percent of children and adolescents experience mental disorders which go unrecognized partly because of stigma and again 50 percent of all mental illness begin by the age of 14 and three-fourth by mid-20s so therefore early brain development and childhood adversities facing war and trauma and their impact on brain for future uh, mental illness was very important. The Sri Lankan part of the
0: project launched in April 2018, and now Athula and his team are basically on the hunt for twins. They're visiting schools and hospitals and working with the Sri Lankan Ministry of Health in an effort to try and find all the twins that they can.
9: This cohort can be used to do studies in in non-mental health research as well. For that matter, you know, uh, studying uh, twin pairs, when they are delivered, they have got low birth weight. There are a lot of medical complications, obstetric complications. So it will bring a very good opportunity to do longitudinal studies by following them up. And again, strategically, what we are going to do along with this twin cohort, we are going to study a non-twin sample as well. So it's, it's a very ambitious but uh, scientifically strong uh, project uh, we are embarking on. They are also exploring the feasibility of similar
0: small population-based twins databases in New Delhi, India, Islamabad in Pakistan and Dakar in Bangladesh. There are lots of other interesting things being studied by twins databases around the world too – At King's in London, for example, another twin study called the Twins Early Development Study has followed a group of around 10,000 sets of twins from birth, looking at their cognitive and psychological development. While some of these kinds of research questions are controversial, particularly around the impact of genes on intelligence and what that means for education, they have shown what the twin study model can do. I asked Cora Christensen where he thought the future lay for twins-based research.
7: When I started in twin research, we were most interested in similarities between twins. But more and more, as the genetic part had moved on, the focus has been more and more on differences between twins.
0: So that means the differences between how twins age or what diseases or conditions they get.
7: I think that the the comparison between uh, identical twins will help us enormously in genetic study and understanding how uh, molecular processes are functioning because we have the best possible control in the, the co-twin if uh, one twin has a condition or exposed to something. I think that that is the area that looks most uh, promising and interesting for twin studies.
0: There are now more twins in the world than there have ever been. Partly as a byproduct of infertility treatment, which has led to more non-identical twin births. This is good news for scientists, particularly as more twin registers appear in the developing world, like the ones Athula is involved in. Meanwhile, my sister and I plan to keep helping the scientists as much as we can. Who knows what more they might find. That's nearly all for this episode of The Ant Hill. But before we go, we wanted to give a little shout-out about some other podcasts you might be interested in. First, another podcast from The Conversation UK is In-Depth Out Loud, in which we narrate long-form articles written by academic experts. Our latest episode is on the history of how the humble potato fueled the rise of liberal capitalism. Britain's love for
5: the potato is bound up with notions of the utilitarian value of a good diet and how a healthy citizenry is the engine room of a strong economy. To find out more about that, we need to go back to the 18th century.
0: That's In Depth Out Loud. And do also check out Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast from our colleagues over at The Conversation Australia. Their June episode is all about explainers – explaining three tricky and baffling topics. Here's a taste.
8: We'll hear what psychology research has to say about why people like pimple-popping videos.
2: We're watching a YouTube video that's just a 50-minute compilation of pimples being popped. Oh. Really bizarre. Yep. Oh, yep. oh yeah.
7: really close. It's, it's really it's zoomed super in. It's close.
2: And how quantum mechanics
4: really works. Any piece of electronics you have, be it your phone, headphones, is using quantum mechanics.
0: That's Trust Me, I'm an Expert from The Conversation Australia. And last but not least, have a listen to the Oxford Sparks podcast, produced by the University of Oxford. In their latest episode, Jennifer Lawson, Charles manager at the university's psychiatry department, asks whether you can stop Alzheimer's before it starts. That's the Oxford Sparks podcast. All these shows are available wherever you get your podcasts from. That's it for this episode of The Ant Hill. A big thanks as ever to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Annabelle Bly and me, Gemma Ware. You can read more insight and analysis by academics online at theconversation.com, where you can also sign up to our free daily newsletter. If you enjoyed the show, please share the love with your friends and do give us a review online.